For November 7th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 175. It's a pirate ship. It should be watertight. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. With random pauses from Los Angeles, I'm your host, Matt. <laughs> wow, that is incredibly irritating. You rather. <laughs> Holy crap. Th- thanks to Lost our sponsor. Rod. Thanks to our sponsor, Steve Reich, for his <laughs> post-minimalism. <laughs> come out to show you. Come out to show you. Come out come to out show, to show you. you. Come, come out to show, show you. you. Come out to come show, out to show you. you. Yes, come absolutely. Out. No, I think it's funny when Skype goes down, and so I try to, uh, you know, um, reproduce those conditions whenever I can. No, I am, I am back. I'm back from my uh, retreat, and um, so I uh, have, have resumed total domination of the, the podcast. Uh, Harvey Firestone, oh, however, brother. will not be making an appearance tonight. What? You said I could? No, Harvey, sit down. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Sit down, your rocket. Sit down, sit down, sit down, your rocket. <laughs> I it's I brother made, Rusty Tom. All right. So uh, later in the podcast, Justin Bieber, baby, 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 no. But first, <laughs> in honor of the opening of the film, Tower Heist, the question for the panel is what tower would you like to steal? Because that's what the movie's about, stealing a tower. The heist <laughs> yeah, of a tower. It's the heist of a tower. It's a tower heist. Uh, first in the alphabet, and I think first in the hearts of all Americans, it's Peter Fenzel. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to get right to the chase and say that the tower that I would steal, it would be a time travel heist. Because I would go back in time to 1991, uh, well, before August 8th, 1991, when there still existed, and I'm going to butcher this, the Radiofonoski Osradek Nadawazki Wukonstantinowi, which was the Warsaw radio mast, the <laughs> tallest tower at the time. In the world now, radio mass. My tower. answer. What? What? <laughs> took my answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, I always get in arguments with people about this during pub trivia because it comes up very frequently whenever they ask a question about what's the tallest structure in North America, right? So let me ask you guys: What's the tallest structure in North America? Man-made structure. Structure. Uh, the Man- yeah. formerly the Sears Tower, now the something 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 else tower. What do you mean the something, something else tower? That's not really an answer. Oh, you mean the renamed Sears Tower? Yeah, exactly. See, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is the CN Tower in Toronto. But the CN Tower doesn't oh, get counted what? on lists. Well, it doesn't get counted on lists of buildings, right? Because it does, it isn't, most of it is uninhabited. It's like a broadcast tower. What do you mean most you mean of it? Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean most of it is uninhabited? I mean, is there one guy who lives in a control room at the base? And then... <laughs> there's, there's a troll in the... In the <laughs> right? <laughs> troll and the hermit exchange letters on like, a, on like a rope that they pull all the way up to the top. And they talk back and forth. But no, it's um, if you look at all the old... To- I mean, nowadays, it doesn't matter because you've got the freaking crazy, you know, official national hubris building in uh, in uh, the United Arab Emirates, right? The Burj Khalifa um, to, uh, to be the tallest everything. But it used to be that there was a whole other class of tall towers just for like radio broadcasting towers that no one could actually go in, right? 
Uh, I mean, maybe I think there's a rule of like 35% of it has more than 35% of it has to be inhabitable uh, in order for it to be a building. I'm not sure exactly where the official is, but it's basically a way of messing with people in bar trivia. But for the longest time, the tallest building in the world or tallest man-made structure in the world was this Warsaw radio tower. Uh, And like all incredibly tall towers, uh, it fell down by accident uh, when the wires that hold it up were connected in the wrong way (laughs) and just fell over. Um, and, and I feel like it never really got, uh, it's time in the sun because I think, I think there was a certain amount of Amerigocentrism in the way that we were always taught as kids that the Sears tower was this like super duper tall thing. And there wasn't anything taller nearby it because of the technicality that the CN tower doesn't count. And the other very tall radio masts don't count. Right. Um, but what I would do is sort of Carmen Sandiego style, uh, go back in time and, and steal, this uh, Polish radio tower, bring it back and set up right next to the Sears Tower just to remind everybody a little bit about their history and about the mankind's futile attempt to scrape the heavens uh, and also to broadcast Polish pop music, uh, which is what I would <laughs> just remind them of their folly, but that's what I would do with it. And Pete, uh, also, <laughs> also don't forget, first you'd have to get the warrant. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a lot of paper. You have no idea how much paper you have to fill for that. Yeah, for some reason you have to determine whether they like spelunking or not. It takes a really long time. The notary yeah. public. <laughs> <laughs> Where in the world's overthinker, Peter Fanzel? <laughs> it's like Matt Lauer. That was such a ridiculous thing. Where in the world is Matt Lauer? Where are you today? I'm in Italy. What's I- the weather? <laughs> it's a lovely, huh? Have an espresso. Yeah, exactly. Have an espresso. All right, we go to the capital of tall towers, uh, New York City. Uh, which that's what I'm talking about. Anyway, you see? Is it though? We've we're... been having some trouble getting our towers up recently. In case you haven't got, in case you haven't heard, yeah. Unless in case you haven't heard the news, where uh, where Mark Lee lives on the 122nd floor. Uh, of a Frank Gehry designed residential apartment complex. Yes, that is true. That is where I live. No, it's totally not true. Okay, uh, the tower that I would like to steal is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror in <laughs> Disney World. It's also in Disneyland. Definitely in Disney World Orlando, which is where I wrote it many times because it's my favorite ride. That's only one reason why I want to steal the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. The other reason is because last time I wrote it uh, in high school, uh, it, my uh, friends, my high school adolescent boy friends and I uh, thought it would be very clever to uh, lift our shirts at the appropriate moment at the top of the tower when they take the picture of the group. Because, you know, we wanted that to be uh, memorialized in our photograph. And when we got back down after the ride, which we enjoyed, we eagerly anticipated uh, to see our results on the screen. And we were censored. We were censored. So this is all an attempt. Uh, this is all for me to recreate this with my high school friends. I will get them all back. We'll all strap into the ride after I stole it because I operated all of it, including the photography equipment. And we're going to lift our shirts up and we're going to take that picture again. Oh, that's what this is all about. <laughs> flashing. That's, that's- that's the most heartwarming flashing story I've ever yeah. heard. <laughs> or at least in like you the top a lot five of, of, of flashing stories too. I mean, you oh, yeah. minor, yeah, minor boys gone wild. <laughs> uh. Wow. Uh, yeah, wow. I just uh, brought that down, didn't let's, I? Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's just sit on that awkward pause for a moment, shall we? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you never know how awkward it's going to be when Snoop Dogg gets behind the camera. Boys got <laughs> what is it? Boys gone wild, Snoop. Am I a mean paid? Yep. Okay. Well, roll the film. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, Thanks for rescuing that one. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I think away from pedophilia. That's a flawless uh, victory. Yeah, definitely. Oh, you were thinking about pedophilia? I was just thinking about straight up. Uh, gay porn, which is, I guess, it would be more awkward if Snoop Dogg were making that. Pedia fizzle dizzle. Moving, moving along as quickly as possible. Yes. Josh McNeil, your tower, sir. Uh, I'm gonna steal the Tower of Babylon before it pisses God off, so I never had to take Spanish. Tower of Babylon. <laughs> Did you yeah. the tower of Babylon. You, the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. Okay. Uh, tower of, you know, which was. Babylon is the hanging gardens, and then you can uh, then it, what has one happy citizen per city. Is that what? Yeah, it does? but it's a terrible wonder to build because it becomes obsolete earlier in the game. I guess so, but you know, if you if you're really ambitious, I always on the higher difficulty levels, are you able to build the, the wonders faster if you're actually good? Because I could never get them on the higher difficulty levels. Uh, are there just no, you got you got to you got to maximize your resources. It's, just you uh, say that as if it's easy. <laughs> It, well, it, once you get to the higher levels, it is. Oh, For those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about, we're talking about civilization, the game, <laughs> right, right. which you build one of the world. Pete, you, have to, you have to learn from the Egyptians and the, the Mayans who built these massive uh, wonders by not caring whether or not their people were happy. <laughs> well, the thing is, civilization doesn't really give you that much of an option. I mean, I guess there's that, there's that cheap thing where if you build lots of little cities, they don't get unhappy as quickly rather than as if you build big cities, which I guess means that it's harder for them to organize, I guess. I'm not entirely sure. But I never really got that. That seemed like an exploit to me. I didn't really, I didn't really appreciate that. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're playing on, like, Empire level on, like, Civ 2 and you've got, like, five cities that have two population and they're all yeah, making yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I've been there and I, I, I continue to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Just seems like a bad design if that's what you get forced into doing all the time. But whatever. What are you going to do? And now, uh, Dr. David Schechner. Yo, yo. Uh, yeah, okay. So I would choose uh, 1970s Oakland, California funk powerhouse, the Tower of Power. So in what that's ways are they actually a tower as opposed to just, you know, a, a hor- mostly horizontal group of funk players? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think their sound uh, is sort of like a vertical layering of horns on top of um, a vertical layering of many, many drums. No, I think it's a school name. <laughs> I have angered God with my <laughs> funk. The Tower of Power fell down. God damn it. <laughs> Not so powerful after all, eh? <laughs> well, they're getting, they're getting sort of on in years. Anyway, (laughs) whose birthday was it that we all drove down to Foxwoods nominally to see Tower of Power and then we ended up just like eating buffet food and gambling while they were vaguely playing off in the distance? I want to say that was Josh's birthday. I don't don't remember most of those. Yeah, exactly. I don't think any of us remembers most of your birthdays. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I, I think my answer speaks for itself. Excellent. Uh, and finally, I, I myself, uh, I would like to go back in time and steal Tower Records because I spent a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time in there when I was a young teenager, considering stealing things. And uh, if I could just put the whole thing under my jacket and walk out uh, before they installed those <laughs> plastic tracking things on all the compact discs, damn them! <laughs> um, I, I wish I could do that. Uh, I think your investment would lose a lot of value if you were. <laughs> The present day, even more so than the Polish radio broadcasting tower. 
which, which, yeah, which is still sitting there in pieces, uh, unlike Tower Records, which is completely expunged <laughs> from the face of the earth. Which is totally so, gone. Totally freaking gone. Frodo. <laughs> oh, it's the other tower. Sorry. <laughs> da, 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 da. That's them, right? Yeah. And the, nobody, uh, the, nobody the, chose Isengard. It's weird. Why would you choose Isengard, man? That place is little, the ends tore that that up. Yeah, a tower that can be brought down by trees is not really doing its job. I'm not sure they did. I'm sure they just installed like a nice reflecting pool at the base of it. <laughs> they just like, like raised the property values so Saruman couldn't exactly. put it anymore. The taxes were too high, so he moved. You're down. right. The tower wasn't brought down. Yeah, they just they did like the gardening did your landscaping work for you. That's awesome. <laughs> that's 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 every person's dream. I want and also a giant. Every person's night, every person's not everyone's nightmare, but everyone's like comeuppance in sort of sci-fi suburban land, like the dystopian future where our uh, our suburban excesses of like mulching and fertilizing come back and get us as our <laughs> her landscaping. What? That is, I believe that's a little piece of mu- musical theater called Little Shop of Horrors. That yes, that's correct, and a, and a, and a, a cautionary tale. Be Simo. <laughs> Oh, man. So, you guys, I hate to break it to you, but Tower Heist isn't about stealing a tower. Oh, no. Spoilers! I know. It's crazy, right? In the title, it seems like it's right there. No. You know what? It's actually not really also about stealing something from a tower, although ostensibly (laughs) that's what it's about. It's really about storming the tower. Storming it. Yes. So you're not. Hi- are, is there a heist or is it just like an assault? Because Tower Assault would be a fine name for a movie. It's effectively okay. So let me let me just get down to brass tacks here. What this movie is about is class warfare. Okay. Um, and <laughs> the, the, the timing of it is uncanny, right? What with the ninety nine percent and all. Um, but it's. Uh, I was actually surprised the extent that they took this in the movie because there's a key. Uh, to spoil it a little bit, it, it, there's a key interaction in the movie in which. Someone suggests to Ben Stiller, you know, the Ben Stiller character who winds up leading the heist, that what he needs to do because to get justice, because he's not probably not going to get it through traditional means, the legal system and recovery of the money that the Bernie Madoff type character has swindled. What he needs to do to get justice is to storm the tower. And there's like literally like a reference to a pitchfork. It's like what they did back in the day. Storm the tower. And that's essentially what happens. I mean, you know, there's like there's the, the, the physical conflict, you know, not so much like they don't come to blows with each other. But, uh, you know, there's a real sense of the conflict between, you know, the man in the tower versus the 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 peasants, the common folk, for lack of a better word. So there's that 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 imagery really stuck with me. There's a, a few other things I want to talk about with the, the way that class is portrayed in this movie. And then I want to throw it out to you guys um, who none of you, none of you else have seen it. Right. Right. Just no, no, that. that's because you have yeah, keeping no, no. this wonderful movie to yourself high in your tower where you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're shielding all of this. Oh, you're coming after me with your pitchforks. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. On this exactly. podcast, 20% of the overthinking, uh, 20% of the overthinkers enjoy 100% of the film watching. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is anyone else angry at the 99% for like not putting their error bars on there? Like, we are the 99 <laughs> plus or minus 0.2%. I, I, I think that's just you, Dave. Damn it. Um, I don't know if it's really that precise of a measurement. It, although, I guess significant figures should be taken into account. So yeah, like right? 90%. Especially in the measurement rubric. Okay, so back to class in, in, in Tower Heist. <laughs> right. So there's an interesting thing that um, it, it's set in New York City, right? And accent like the vo- the vocal patterns of the quote-unquote working class that's really played up as a difference between um the alan alda hard r you know uh sort of more formal english speaking 
of of the one percent and then of the ninety nine percent, you know, who are from who are from Astoria, from Queens, from Brooklyn. You know, that's, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. One of us mess with all of us. Yeah, uh, exactly. So there's that. Um, also interesting <laughs> is, um. Oh shoot! I'm blanking on it. So that's, I'm going to throw that out there. Um, Storm the that's, Storming the Tower. That's, that's high endorsement for a movie. Also interesting is uh, actually Eddie I Murphy forgot. plays yeah. the same character in this movie that he played in Coming to America. Right? He just continued living in Queens uh, <laughs> you know, after the end of Coming to America, and you know w- what became uh, an expert on tower heisting. He's not an expert <laughs> in tower heisting. He's more of an expert in lifting satellite dishes off of balconies. Wow. So wait, is it, is it funny? Like, so looking at this, I hear the I hear Tower Heist, and I heard people say Brett Ratner, uh, Brett Ratner, right? As like as if Brett Ratner is like the most important person attached to this project. Whereas in fact, it is a Ben Stiller, Eddie Murphy buddy cop movie. Or is like, are they just on the poster? I'm looking at the IMDb page right now. It is. It is a comedy. It's actually it's, it's funnier than anyone would expect a Brett Ratner movie called Tower Heist to be. But, like, a Ben Stiller, Eddie Murphy movie is supposed to be funny, right? Like, isn't that the point? I guess, ben, it, I mean... A Ben Stiller, it? Eddie, movie, movie, Murphy, Eddie Murphy movie from, like, the late 80s is supposed to be funny. I don't know I mean, yeah, currently I it's supposed to be funny. But right. I mean, it, it is they, definitely a hybrid crime-slash-comedy movie. No doubt okay, about it. Okay, now, Mark, I'm told that the, the, the things I have read on the interwebs have said that this is, like, Eddie Murphy sort of returning to form of back when people used to like him a lot as opposed to uh pluto nash as or, opposed to the last 15 years oh, or opposed <laughs> to like uh, meet dave right okay let's um, put the, there are wait, movies wait. in which eddie murphy curses and movies in which he does not curse wait, does this, this just is, mean this that, like, one of those that he curses like he started taking narcotics again <laughs> oh, i mean i would i would i would what? frame it a little bit more loosely and i would say there are movies in which eddie murphy performs uh where he performs characters and then there are movies where eddie murphy like represents characters there's movies where eddie murphy is a symbol for something that you may think is funny and then there are ones where eddie murphy tries to sort of vividly communicate funniness in a present way right so like oh. for example the, the nutty professor right he made a nutty professor movie whatever that's you know that's supposed to be funny because he looks ridiculous on the poster right he's a big fat guy so there's like eddie murphy being a funny thing like there he is he's a funny thing that's what it is as opposed to something like you know trading places where looking at his actual character isn't funny but the things that he does are funny uh, and it seems like eddie murphy's funniness became much more of a symbolic high level aspect of his casting in a movie and the nature of a project uh, and and don't get we joke about pluto nash it's not really appropriate to joke about pluto nash pluto nash is one of the biggest bombs ever but a lot of these eddie murphy comedies were very successful in a professor movies even like the haunted mansion movie made money like these are family movies that a lot of people like um, but they, they aren't the old kind of Eddie Murphy movies. And I think that there's more than just these are bad that makes a difference between a modern uh, – not even a modern, but like a, um, you know, a Nutty Professor-esque Eddie Murphy movie and then like a Boomerang-esque Eddie Murphy movie. Very different in terms of just the approach to performance in general. And so then when you see him do something like Dreamgirls, uh, he's going back to actually inhabiting a character as opposed to sort of representing it. Um, I mean maybe I'm using – I mean Matt, you're, you're a professional in the field. How would you characterize well, yes. this kind of – phenomenon yes i, I mean you know what i'm talking about right next you, next you, time you, next time dear boy try acting that's uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you would just be do you know that openly you know, critical without any sort of yeah, specificity you just be like yeah, bah, 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 bah. Do you, does everyone does everyone know that joke maybe the listeners don't it's a famous exchange that's supposed to have happened between Lawrence olivier and dustin hoffman and on dustin the set of Mar- marathon man and they they show up for a uh 
for a, a shot and Dustin Hoffman has kept himself all night and has like run 10 miles to get exhausted the way his character is supposed to be exhausted. And uh, Larry, you know, uh, Sir Larry, Sir Lawrence takes one look at him and says, oh, dear boy, what on earth is wrong with you? And uh, Dustin Hoffman says, well, he says, uh, well, I, I got I got ready for my role. I, you know, I did it. I, and, and Lawrence Olivia says, next time, dear boy, try acting. Um, and it's supposed to it's supposed to illustrate the uh the difference between what method acting and a kind of older more presentational style of acting. Pete, I've forgotten your question. Can you ask it again? Oh, so the question is so if you compare a movie like The Nutty Professor, yes. where Eddie Murphy is in a fat suit yep. and then there's also Meet the Clumps or whatever it's called, whatever it is where it's always a whole bunch of different characters. And the idea is that in a movie like Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Eddie Murphy, the, the humor in Eddie Murphy's performance and the value in Eddie Murphy's performance is the things that he does in the moment as he's inhabiting the character, whereas the humor in something like The Nutty Professor, you know, he, he sort of like represents and sort of ballistically creates this funny thing and then sort of sends it along its way. So it's sort of like a, I would one way I characterize it as like a ballistic versus a dynamic style of comedy where it's like, oh, you know, like we're going to see, have a movie where a guy gets hit in the face with a board 15 times. Go. Right? Like that, that could be funny, but it's not going to be because of, and like the guy doing it could make it funny by like Pratt falling over and over and over again, but it's not going to be funny the way that Coming to America is funny. Um, because in Coming to America, you see him experience this thing, right? He's sort of inside of it, he's inhabiting it. Um, whereas in, you know, I have to keep listing these terrible, not terrible, but these like schlocky, schlocky Eddie Murphy movies. But even in something like Shrek or Mulan, where he's like, I'm a little voice, oh, I'm an animal, you know, like that's it's a different kind of. So just to, just to address this very quickly, in this movie, it's definitely more along those lines of you know him being the donkey to Shrek. Oh, really? He's more oh, that, of a donkey than a that, or more of a nutty professor as opposed to a as a, 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 a Beverly Hills cop, right? In oh. that, like you know, he is there obviously in contrast to the Ben Stiller, to the Matthew Broderick, to the well, Casey Affleck characters who are the sort of the you know the white collar bumbling incompetent white criminals compared uh, aspiring criminals versus the actual you know criminal African American black. Uh, Motor mouth, street wise, uh, very slick. But, uh, I mean, it, you know, is is it that much different from the dichotomy between, say, his and Dan Aykroyd's characters in Trading Places? It's he said to to open silence. <laughs> were, we using, were we using that as a as a, as a contrast, though? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I guess that. Simply uh, whether or not his character is, uh, from the onset, a sort of stereotype doesn't necessarily mean that it falls into um, you know, one of the two classes that Pete sort of defined at the onset. Because his, yeah. uh, you know, his character in Trading Places, you know, in, in the first sort of blushes of the movie, is like you know, urban African-American street tough. You know, he's grifter. And, you know, were it any other comedian performing that role, it might not have been, you know, as, like, nuanced and likable um, and, and just, you know, enjoyable as, you know, young Eddie Murphy did with it. But um, but it is, you know, so, so do you see what I'm saying? Like, I haven't seen Tower Heist, obviously. I just don't know whether or not simply the fact that he's put in contrast with, like, the white blue bloods means that it has to be a nutty professor-style role. Is there yeah, something no, else? Sorry, what? go ahead. Well, yeah, it's more of a question of the craft of acting and the way he, as I was sort of yeah. saying, inhabits and is inside of the role. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like a good is, example, is he letting the role speak for itself, or is he going to do something creative with it? Yeah. Like, like a good example, if you go back, if you've ever seen Raw, his classic stand-up special. Yes. 
um, one of like there's the part of Raw where he goes off and he talks about McDonald's hamburgers. Do you guys know the part that I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. Where he like he's describing because this is a sort of hamburgers, but, right? And his, yeah, his mom would make him hamburgers that were so much better than the McDonald's hamburgers, but all the kids in the neighborhood would brag when they had the McDonald's hamburgers, and he would feel ashamed because his hamburger was like all sloppy and had tomatoes on it and vegetables, and it was ju- had his juice running out. And it made him sad, and he would cry. Um, and he imbues it with it's it's a movie that has it's a, not a movie it's a it's a piece of the routine there's a lot of funny voices in it and he's playing a bunch of different characters he's telling the stories like i got mcdonald's i got mcdonald's but there is a presence in humanity in the way that he communicates the story it's not really a funny joke right it's not like i mean there's a couple of little plays on words in there and moments of recognition and stuff but it's really about the emotional perspective of the person with the hamburger Right, and in that sense, he's very immediate, and it's very identifiable, and it's very sympathetic. And um, I mean, even if you want to, even if you want to take, I guess you guys probably haven't seen both these movies, but if you want to take Doctor Doolittle and compare it to Nutty Professor, I feel like in the original Doctor, Do- not the original, but the 1998 Doctor Doolittle, Eddie Murphy is a lot more present in that person than he is in the Nutty Professor role, where he's much more of a, of a, almost like an automaton. Um, and I don't mean that in a strictly derisive way. It is a form of performance, right? To say, like, I'm going to be this thing. I'm going to represent this idea. I'm going to sort of transcend being a person right now and just be a cartoon, right? And, like, be an, an object. And it's, there's a style of comedic performance that does that, right? And it's the kind of thing that you see um, in certain kinds of, like, Adult Swim cartoons, another example of that, where it's, sure. you know. I mean, like, the... Uh, the origin of that is like probably mask masked theater, right? Where you, yeah. you have these masks that. <laughs> For a second there, I thought you were talking about the Jim Carrey movie, The Mask. No, somebody yeah, the, stop. <laughs> the origin. Or the is- short live action cartoon show in the eighties. Yeah. Anyone else with me? Uh, we need Blinky for that. Sorry, go. No, on. It's really a very movie prob- starring Mel Gibson and Cher, right? Is it Mel Gibson? No, it's not. Who's in the mask? Uh, I'm gonna. You you keep talking. Well, that talking. Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz and Cher and Sam Elliott is in it. Never Stoltz, mind. Stoltz. Yep. Um, the, the idea being that there are, you know, a, a number of social roles and you have actors portray not individual characters, but you have actors step into kind of roles by putting on a, the mask that is, you know, assigned to that role. And the roles are things like, you know, lecherous old man, you know, meddling busybody servant, uh, two young lovers, things like this, the stock characters, the Commedia dell'arte. And they, um, you know, and then they're, they're, they get, then hijinks ensue, right? Um, so it, it, and, but you see like what's, what's happening there is that it's not really important. The relationship among the characters, the people on screen or on stage is not really important. It's really more the relationship of, of the work of the dramatic work to the audience. That's important. Mm. Whereas in something that's, that's acted in a more kind of 20th century, psychologically realistic style, uh, it, we we don't really come into it as spectators, and it's really the the relationship among the characters on screen that is the important thing, right? Which I think actually does a really good job of characterizing the difference between something like Trading Places and something like let me pick another random one from more recently. Uh, 
let's just say, oh, what was that, Norbit? Yeah, Norbit. We're going to say Norbit. Um, <laughs> is, is that the one where he's actually an automaton being inhabited by other things? No, that's Meet Dave. That's Meet Dave. <laughs> no, Norbit. No, I thought Norbit it was impressive that Matt brought that up as an acting style because you know, then Eddie Murphy's actually the pioneer of this thing. Yeah, no, Norbit pioneer. like Jack Spratt the movie, right, where it's like the fat lady and the thin dude, and it's awkward. Uh. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, no. Eddie Eddie Murphy has written a number of really seminal works on uh, on the craft of acting. You know. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, they're taught in all the big drama schools in Europe. Oh, only in Europe. <laughs> Just like James Brown was cool in Europe before he was cool with white America. They're more progressive <laughs> with that sort of thing. Um, or are you making that up? Is that not true? <laughs> Pete, I've got a bridge. I'd like yes, to this. Side question: Do you, as somebody who studies acting, do you think people who write about acting are are? Do you think there's an intersection between really good actors and people who write well about acting? No. And no. Actually, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think there actually is, is is no intersection about it. I think people people who who really act well. I mean, the great the great geniuses, not the kind of working actors of the the craft who who are you know the overthinking it uh the ones that we like the actors who work but like just the great geniuses of the craft um they're not great geniuses because they are particularly articulate or because they have a, a gift for organizing their thoughts you know you know what i mean they they're uh they're the great geniuses of it because they have a a certain charisma or they have a you know i don't know a certain facility for kind of entering into the spirit of another thing um that that just doesn't necessarily transmit well but but there are good this this is where like like acting um acting and girls gymnastics have like significant parallelism right like you never see a a girls gymnastics coach who's not like a fat middle-aged dude who could not for the life of him pull off even the most remedial uh gymnastic stunt but what, and I feel like, and, like, and that's, like that's, Stanislavski, is he like a famed actor? Like, he was, you know, yeah, could I actually, find he was, yeah. He's the one. He's, okay. I mean, he's the exception that kind of goes against the, uh, kind of goes against but, the, the rule. Um, because, but what he did was basically, uh, like, scribble down some notes and they got, I mean, there's an interesting kind of translation and transmission editing history to all those Stanislavski books that, that, that what we read as the Stanislavski books were really heavily edited and cleaned up by their English translator. And, um, his own thoughts were more of a jumble and more of a kind of disorganized, uh, uh, you know, sort of disorganized, messy, messy thing. But th- there are good acting teachers who are not necessarily good good actors and it's uh it's actually kind of gives lie to the old like you know those who can't teach i mean there are a lot of bad actors who teach but there are uh i mean that is to say people who wish they were good actors but then there are a lot of people who who don't wish they could be actors at all who want to be acting teachers and who are who are good at that who want to coach the girls gymnastics but in fact are not girls nor gymnasts (laughs) (laughs) it reminds i think i think mark ripito the famous uh yeah, yeah, the, fam- the famous uh, weightlifting guru who is very popular on the internet now who wrote Starting Strength said, uh, mediocre athletes that tried like hell to get good are the best coaches, uh, is what he said about it. And I, I would wonder whether that would be similar. Like, mediocre actors who tried like hell to get good make the best acting coaches, uh, but perhaps not. Um, Mark, have we totally hijacked your movie discussion, by the way? <laughs> you, have you, you, have, you have stored my tower. You have stolen but the topic. I am no. giving you Mark, tower you, you Mark, you should have mounted a better, wait for it, Tower defense. Oh, oh. it's a golf clap for, for rather on that. I should have. 
Okay, so I'm remembering what it was that I blanked on earlier. That joke was practically bejeweled, Matt. (laughs) Uh, Mark is one angry. I'm I'm so, yeah, I was about to say, I'm so angry, birds. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) Uh, Plants versus zombies. Are you are you gonna are you gonna tear that kind of just low quality joke out against the fruit ninja here? <laughs> okay, tower heist, class warfare. All right, so here's the deal: um, Americans, I think, have two contradictory ways that they view tend to view class. Right, the first being that they always want to see themselves as a bit of an underdog and more of the common man and not the elite. Right. The other contradictory view that they take is that they always see themselves, they want to think of themselves as better off than, uh, they always want to think of themselves as middle class or better off than the average person. Like if you, I think you've cited this on the podcast before, like if you do a poll and you ask people how many, you know, consider yourselves to be above average in income and like 70 some odd percent of people will say that they're above average, but doesn't mathematically make sense, right? Well, but to be fair, Americans also don't understand math. That's true. <laughs> okay, bracketing that for a moment. <laughs> so you have these two uh, opposing ideas here, right? Americans want to be considered the common man, but they also want to sort of take on the sense of affluence that they don't actually, or project the sense of affluence that they may not actually have, right? We see this, I think we see this reflected in Tower Heist in a couple of ways. One is pretty obvious uh, in terms of uh, seeing themselves as the underdog, right? And as I mentioned before, the accents with all, all sorts of different ways that they show uh, the the working uh, people in the tower that serve the Bernie Madoff character, character. Um, you know, like one of them rides a bike to work. Uh, the, the, the Ben Stiller character uh, lives in a neighborhood which uh, you, you get the sense that there's higher crime there because he lives next to the Eddie Murphy thief character, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons. So you have that. You also have, against that, um, this, uh, like, you know, the whole, you know, I, I have this, still have this sense, some small sense of affluence in spite of me not being the most affluent. And it's, it was in these, like, little ways. The Ben Stiller character, um, he listens to some form of NPR in his, uh, in the morning when he's getting ready for work. It's like some inane banter about cheese. Um, and, and he also, like, grinds his own coffee. He has, like, a fairly nice coffee grinder. And I found like the presence of those two things like going at the same time to be really fascinating. And I guess if nothing else, showing that, you know, when you're making a movie like this, you're, uh, you know, you're trying to appeal to both of these things rather than make it, you know, totally just a, a oh, totally over a piece of class warfare being about how like, uh, you know, I'm so poor and I'm so downtrodden and have none of these things that this uh, rich person has. I mean, is the film, would you say that the film is, is critical of this dynamic or has something interesting to say about it? No, I think it's just there. There's little details that are there that if you're looking at it with a discerning, overthinking eye, you pick up on. And, uh, you know, like, I guess I'm curious of thinking, like, what uh, are other examples? Do we see that in other movies that, you know, deal with this issue of class uh, or, the, or is it more likely that they sort of play one pole or the other? I mean, uh, oh, uh, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I guess. Well, you can think about um, how. I mean, the one I always like to go to Independence Day because it's the best movie ever. Yes. Um, but like the the uh, Jeff Goldblum character in Independence Day, um, despite constantly being ragged on for being an environmentalist, has nothing about his lifestyle or attitude or behavior that indicates that he cares about anything other than just re- regular old consumerism, right? Like, he rides his bike to work. 
I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah, but he also has, like, a fancy new computer, and he's, like, you know, got, he's wears pretty nice clothes, and, like, he's clear that he benefits from industrial society and, like, isn't really committed to a kind of, like, Luddite. I guess it's not Luddite to be environmentalist, but, like, there is a certain contradiction in being, like, pretty much normal and also claiming to be kind of, like, you know, a radical environmentalist person. You know what I mean? Although it's not quite that much, but it definitely strikes me as like at the time his fancy Apple computer. It's not the kind of thing that that represents a commitment to scaling back uh, what humanity is doing to the world, right? It's like a greater degree. Maybe it's because I tend to see these things in terms of artifice as well, and versus nature, I suppose. But I don't know. Maybe at least symbolically. What are some other examples? I bought you guys some time. What do you? What are some other? <laughs> I was going to say, like, I feel like the the class war is um, sort of like a central theme in in a lot of uh, '80s comedies, right? And I'm thinking like like Heather's and Better Off Dead. A lot of like the team romance comedies are, are or even like the Karate Kid. Um, you know, the class war is, is either the backdrop or sort of like a tacit character itself. In um, you know, you, you almost don't even really have to flesh out the characters in the movie uh, as individual entities. You can just assign them a class, and they'll sort of follow through on the roles and, and develop the plot that way. Um, the plot being a skiing contest. So, wait, are we talking about the class warfare in general as a, as a phenomenon? Or are we talking about that sort of tension and contradiction between kind of aspiring to having nice things, but also like hating the system that provides them? I guess uh, uh, I guess I was I was answering the first question, but you oh, can okay. kind of look at the way that uh, that that you know war between the classes is treated as a way of, of addressing the second question, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like taken as a given to the point of it being sort of an amusing plot point in the 80s when, you know, consumerism was expanding at, you know, an unprecedented rate. Um, whereas, I don't know, now, I mean, maybe it's just that now I have to actually secure an income to pay for a family that, <laughs> that I see it as, like, more of a darker element. Mm. I mean, if you think about the sort of classic 80s romantic comedy, you often have situations where protagonists are outcasts, right? Because they have a rough upbringing, right? Or like they don't have the same resources as the cool kids and they're poor. But at the same time, there is often a rich person who is put up as awesome and like the person you want to be with, like a main love interest, right? You don't end up with Ducky, right? (laughs) Like Ducky isn't actually the romantic lead of Pretty in Pink. Um, Is it Pretty in Pink or am I thinking of 16 Candles? Am I getting them? I get those two confused all the time. Those are different Um, movies? Yeah, they are actually different thought, movies. No, I it's pretty. 16, I thought Sixteen Candles was the German title. Yeah, <laughs> but no, in Pretty in Pink, you end up with Andrew McCarthy. You don't end up with uh, with uh, John Cryer, right? Um, you end up with Blaine, not with Ducky. Uh, even though everybody makes such a big deal about being, you know, I kind of these like edgy people who are like, you know, outside of of the cool class. There's like an aspiration. You're glorifying being the underdog while at the same time aspiring. Uh, to being the, the head honcho. You can sort of th- think about it as kind of hedging your Nietzschean bets, right? If you want to think about the story <laughs> of the birds of prey and the sheep, right? And like the, the is that in Beyond Good and Evil or is Thus Speak Thou Zarathustra, right? Where it's like the reason that these kinds of ethics and morals that exist that glorify passivity and that glorify service and, you know, submission is because at some point all the people who are getting dominated rightfully by the powerful and strong and smart uh, banded together and demonized being powerful and strong and smart to protect themselves and to sort of like you know duplicitously seize control of the human race right and and uh and that's like the idea in that philosophy not that i ascribe to it personally but like this idea that people become strong and take over by institutionalizing mediocrity 
and institutionalizing like you know lack of resistance um, and and thus like fighting back against it. And that's one of the points, tension points, in which these two very same ideas, right? Wanting to be the head honcho, wanting to have the nice things, wanting to actualize yourself in that way, versus like a sympathy for the people who aren't those people and a sense that the people who aren't you who are those people, you hate them. <laughs> right? Like um, another example is entourage, right? Where like we sympathize with Johnny Drama and we sympathize with Turtle and like they're kind of losers, right? But at the same time, they've got their friend who's the movie star and we sympathize with him too. But it's like that's a good point sense of the point of tension. They really benefit from that relationship um, to a greater degree than they reserve. I could totally see. Can, can we take show. a moment to remind Rather that we're we're all counting on him to be the Adrian Brody for our entourage? So Adrian like Adrian Brody. <laughs> Or what's his name? What's his name? Adrian. Adrian. Oh, Grenier or Grenier. Actually, no, I meant Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody as the lead of Entourage would be a really interesting movie. It's like, yo, man, what do you do today? It's like, oh, I made a movie about the Holocaust. Damn! (laughs) (laughs) It should be baller, yo! Yeah, I was hoping to get a Critics' Choice Award. Uh, You know, I really put in a great performance. Awesome, let's go out to the strip club! (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, as long as... Looking at the female naked bodies will probably help me because have, oh, the whole cast has to be naked during the Auschwitz scenes. So I have to really have any, <laughs> any hotties in stripes? <laughs> well, I mean, they'll have a lot of makeup on and, um, and it's not really appropriate to smile in these situations. <laughs> but, um, but I will play the piano, so I'm taking those lessons. Oh, man, we have to find you a sexy piano teacher for the pianist. Like, um, and so it goes on. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, you're, you're the movie Splice, right? The movie Splice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Adrian Brody's got all tough guy now since he started fighting the Predators professionally. Yes. Right? Not just, he doesn't even want to take on one Predator. He wants to take on all of them because he's just that crazy. So ever since King Kong, really, it's just been silly. A- A- Adrian Brody or Adrian Grenier? Whoever wins, we lose. Actually, Adrian <laughs> Paul is going to win because there can be only one. Um, and there you go. It's a Highlander the Series reference. Yeah. That's a deep cut. <laughs> Oh man! So, Mark, I hijacked yeah, your topic. I just, again. I just want to point out, Josh. Josh, <laughs> Josh boy, did you back the wrong horse? If uh, if you're counting, if you're counting on me making it big, <laughs> boy, the smart we're, money was on. We're all gonna come live in your studio apartment and just really just party LA style. That's okay. We did that once over Christmas. It was pretty fun. <laughs> Okay, I guess one last thing to uh, to wrap up the Tower Heist discussion. Damn, uh, you watching oh, Tower damn. Heist? Oh man, so cool! You're the you're the Mac Daddyo, Mark. We're I've, all going to see movies like you do sometime. I've <laughs> never seen great. I've never seen Entourage. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Oh, you're missing out. That show is a show right. about right. famous person and his yeah. friends. Just picture Sex in the City, but replace all the parts with dudes. Yeah, and Eric Roberts oh, is a okay. mushroom dealer. He's awesome. That I can He's not in very many episodes. <laughs> it's 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 like four minutes of Jeremy Piven and twenty six minutes that should have Jeremy Piven yeah. in them. You really have to be fond of Hollywood, I think, to like Entourage. Much like you have to be fond of New York cosmopolitan lifestyle to like Sex and the City. It's very much a culture and period piece. Um, and, is, has, has Jeremy Piven fully recovered from his mercury poisoning? By the way, <laughs> by the way. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but but I know – was it David Mamet who had the, the quote yeah. about this? Rather, I'm looking at you. Yeah, it was, it's like, was what, uh, David he, he was doing like speed speed the plow, right? Yep. And, yeah. uh, and, he, and he had to Speaking like back out. 
he had to like like back out by all accounts he was a dick and and he quit because he had mercury poisoning well, yeah that was the excuse <laughs> wait so david mamet said Oh yeah, you know Jeremy Piven uh, reluctantly needs to prematurely terminate his run on Speed the Plow to pursue an alternate career as a thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that David Mamet. He's so that witty. <laughs> he, he dropped a couple of f bombs in the middle there too, just to yeah, make you know who he was talking. But. And he hates women. Okay, uh-huh. last thought on Tower Heist: uh, the timing of it, right? I mean, obviously, these movies, the cycle time on these things is, is what? Yeah, this isn't a recession oh, a movie. This is a, this is a Bernie Madoff movie, right? That it's is a Bernie say- Madoff movie, right. and uh, this, like, Storm the, Storm the Tower and this real, like, 99% thing, you know, way predates uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And obviously, like, the seeds of that were, were forming, so it's not completely out of left field that the, the, the timing lines up. With it, but it's still really interesting, and I'm probably fortuitous for uh, the movie's business that you know these ideas of income inequality are really uh, at the forefront of the media right now. And uh, you know, thinking about that, and we have other examples where a movie sort of you know presages current events and just like happens to uh, to line up really nicely in that way. Yeah. Well, the biggest one of those is 24. Right, like which which just won the freaking jackpot in terms of random historical occurrences. Because it, it was started like, before nine eleven. No, it started right after nine. It came out like uh, less than uh, a month after nine eleven happened. Right, but it was all made like the first season was made before nine eleven happened, which lead, asks you who where's follow the money. Right, like I think nine eleven was. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you saying like, Peter? Are you saying the twenty four was an inside job? I am saying that Kiefer Sutherland has personally benefited more from 9-11 than all of radical international Islam has benefited. <laughs> and therefore, you need to consider uh, who, if, who – obviously things are done by the person who benefits from them the most. That is what we know, right? Always. Um, <laughs> so, people don't do things. Society does things, right? The author is dead. So in that circumstance, you have to look for the social force that, that really benefits the most from the situation, yes. And that's clearly um, Elijah Cuthbert. No, Dushku. Shoot, which is which? Cuthbert. Cuthbert. <laughs> I always confuse them, too. Some, some bizarre amalgam of fuzz and cuz. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, it is funny when you make something and then it happens and you're like, oh, man. Some people scramble and they're like, oh, man, we were making this thing and then this thing happened and made it totally current. And we got to really, really hammer that. Like, that's awesome. It's like, right? you know what? I was thinking this weekend about uh, The Simpsons and the topic of Montgomery Burns came up. And you know that, let's say, six months from now, The Simpsons is going to do their, like, you know, Occupy Springfield and Mr. Burns being the 1% type of thing. I think the lead right. time on The Simpsons is, is, like, 18 months, actually, right? Well, wow. That much? Yeah, it's, pre- but it's the, pretty The point intense. is, six, six months or 18 months, that's going to come along, of like, well, we were expecting that. And, you know, it's funny that they did it, and it's great that they did it, but, eh. When was it's the last be like time the first- that you guys saw a, a new Simpsons? Gosh, yeah, at right. Least Me too. <laughs> well, that's because we record our podcast on Sunday nights. Although I guess it's on before the podcast, so I could tune in. Right? Like, isn't it? When is it? It's on Sundays at eight still, or did they move it? Yeah. It'd be like when was, be when like was the Matt, Matt? When was the last time they made a new Simpsons? Uh, the fourth season. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. It was Bart versus Thanksgiving. After that, it's all just rehashing. Bump, set, and spike. There you go. Damn. Damn, turtle. Damn. <laughs> Wait, why am I turtle on this? <laughs> In the entourage of your own life, you must be turtle following your own fame. Are there any are there any Asian guys in entourage? Uh, not straight Asian men. No, there's a very there's a prominent gay Asian man in it. The, yeah, there's a Gaysian. Okay, that's cool. Can I be that guy? Sure. He's sure. Jeremy Piven's uh, right hand man. Uh, um, I don't so want to speak. Jeremy Piven's right hand man. What? I take I, that back. What you think that just you think that just because he's Asian, you don't want him to be? You know, why do you know, why do you hate this guy? No, I don't want to be a right hand man to a to a budding thermometer. <laughs> yeah, cool. he, you have to like taste test everything for mercury, right? <laughs> yeah, I know he can't. He can't eat it, and he better not. This is pregnant. where they, that character in the show would now make a rectal thermometer joke. That's how the show would work. Um, like that's how Entourage functions. Ah. Um, <laughs> so in the butt, ooh yeah, like that. He wouldn't say in the no. He wouldn't. Say, never mind. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, all right. Let's, let's all so, just... uh, so in other news. Um, we we had a uh, we had a response on Twitter. I put out the call at the beginning of the podcast, the beginning of our recording, for uh, any questions that we have, um, uh, any questions that people have for us. So uh, so a couple of them. Dromedary says, "Is there anything you would like to reiterate?" I'm not quite sure what that means, uh, Dromedary. So <laughs> wait, say that, say that again. Is there anything you would like to reiterate? Wait, I didn't quite catch that. Could you yeah, one more time. <laughs> Is there anything you would like to look? Don't make and me, see. guys. Don't make me. Don't make me have words with friends. <laughs> uh, uh, there is essentially a reiteration of camel, right? Yeah. Um, We've got to go back tree into the future. Uh, JLP Bouchard writes no. In other words, we're no. anyone have a question for the panel? <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, well, and I just I John, well played. Yeah, At least he keeps uh, us on his contacts list. That's another thing you can access on your cell phone. <laughs> other than gosh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and adjust my settings. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't put a lot of I don't put a lot of stock. In this whole uh, conversation, man, you've you've got to you've got to uh, you got to replace this with some professional podcasters, Matt, and increase the ringer volume. <laughs> I wish I could hit the mute switch on all of you. Um, That's ben- not a joke. That's not a joke at all. Oh man, Ben from Canada says Akira will have a uh, Western live action remake. So, what anime, if any, would you like to see done live action by Hollywood? My neighbor Totoro. Yeah, no, awesome. not not definitely not that. <laughs> that would be terrible. Uh, Lupin the Third. I've said this for years. Mm. Has anyone else seen Lupin the Third? Nope. I watched it with you, but never with anybody else. So it's not the same tier. All right. You should watch it with your son someday or daughter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <I'll>, uh, <laughs> I think they already did Space Battleship Yamato. I believe. <laughs> But um, I would love to see uh, Galaxy Express 3.9. That's one of my personal favorites. I'd love to see how they do that as a children's movie with live-action characters. Um, yeah. We're just going to name things and not explain what they are so that people who don't have any idea what we're talking about will be totally lost. I'm, I'm going to bring out Cowboy Bebop just because yeah. uh, it's one of the few anime properties that I know. 
And also because I know this is going to uh, stoke, no pun intended, uh, additional calls for Stokes to finish his uh, you know, overthinking Cowboy Bebop series. Well, would it be accurate and appropriate for Cowboy Bebop if it went for as long as people wanted it to go? Like, isn't sort of the whole point of Cowboy Bebop that they stopped doing it before everybody wanted them to stop um, and then leaving them wanting more? Or is that actually just a sad drawback? That would be, be pretty meta of Stokes to do. That would be pretty great. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, but yeah, no, there's no, there's not been a... There has not been a Cowboy Bebop live action of anything. They did. They made a movie, uh, but the movie is basically structured like just two long episodes, but back to back. Is it is it live uh, action or is it- no? No, 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 no. Yeah, it, it's it's still anime. Uh, but but you get the sense that it's less because the authors, you know, had a new grand idea that they wanted to bring forth, you know, in that universe, and more that they had had a couple of okay ideas that had been cut at one point or another during the production of the series and felt like they could capitalize on it. I mean, fairly run-of-the-mill theatrical releases of long anime episodes are fairly common. Yeah, yeah. There's like there's like 35,000 Naruto movies or something along those lines. <laughs> you've got to catch them all, Pete. Yeah, you've got to catch all the Naruto. It doesn't you have to watch all the Naruto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, mixing. I'm telling you, it's we're ta- we will know we were truly old when they make the live-action Pokemon movie. It is a matter of time. Mm. Um, and at that point, we will be officially, officially past our uh, budding and blooming uh, youthful vigor. So, uh, and that will be the end of it. Um, yeah. Is, is that uh, when it will be, or, or is it when Baby Got Back will play on a Golden Oldies station? Uh, they can do. They can play Baby Got Back on any station they want, and I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> like, I feel like it has a pass. Baby like, Got Back with a hall pass for you. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Are you the one who told me? I think it might have been Blinky who told me about the time when Sir Mixalot was protested at one of his concerts by like a bunch of feminist groups, and he like went outside to talk about them about how he sees Baby Got Back as a song, a positive song about female body issues. Wow. <laughs> he's like trying. He's like trying to celebrate women of all shapes. Um, <laughs> really, one shape. Wow. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> just sort of an underrepresented shape. You know? Fair enough. Fair enough. He sees it as the like, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. It's like say it loud. I've got back and I'm proud. Mm. Wow. I'll tell you what. I probably won't like is the Powerpuff Girls movie. That probably won't be very good. Oh, that's not really an anime. It's just in a, it's just in sort of a anime influenced style. Um, I don't know. Any other questions, or should we yeah. go back to the answer? See, uh, see, Morgan Examiner, uh, Chris Morgan of the Cheers podcast says, uh, in honor of Hell of Wheels, what act of industrial revolution uh, would you like seen turned into a TV show or movie? What act of the industrial revolution? Well, yeah, what a- he says, what act of industrial revolution? I mean, what? I guess <laughs> let's interpret that as being like what part of. What kind of aspect of the Industrial Revolution would you like seen turned into a TV show or movie? Black Lung. <laughs> like a black exploitation movie or <laughs> Black <Lime>? Lung. <laughs> it's time to wheeze out crime. Yeah. I would love to uh, see uh, Cyrus McCormick's The Reaper. Uh, <laughs> it's just about a, a haunted mechanism that uh, does agricultural work. I would, uh, I would love to see like a buddy movie with uh, with Marx and Engels having adventures across Europe. That's just called Capital. <laughs> I like get Das Kapital. You, you don't want to. I want to. Oh, go ahead. I, I want to see a uh, like a There Will Be Blood style movie about the fight over like how wide a, you know what the gauge on railroads should be. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, yeah, because you know about how they how you can trace it back to the Roman wagon wheels and all that stuff. Isn't yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you gotten that, that email forward as well? Maybe I forwarded it. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
Totally. And also, um, uh, <laughs> if you scroll down, an angel will grant your wish and you'll meet your crush. Pete, Pete did, you, did you send it to five people within the next 15 minutes? <laughs> you know you'll get to don't. Oh, no. That's horrible. That's terrible. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess that, what agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, steampunk. Is that, is that run its course? Are we tired of steampunk or are we still okay with steampunk? Yeah. I was listening to to the um, Geeks Guide to the Galaxy podcast, which is what IO9's podcast. They uh, and they were having this conversation. That they put steampunk and zombies in the same category, yeah. which is that like played out. You mean no? You can still do it, but you better have a damn original idea. And like right. really, really good original ideas. Like I'm still, you know, I'd still read a good zombie story. I'd still read a good steampunk story. But like it's it's got to be something better than you know the five thousand others that came out that day. Um, so, so what is uh, steampunk? Sort of falls into um, into the similar category for me as does the band Fish, where like the object in and of itself is something that I feel uh, you know that I'd really enjoy, and and I would probably consume more of it if not for all of the other fans of that thing who I just cannot stand. Sorry, Fish fans out there, but yeah, they're gone. You should shower now. Anyway, mm-hmm. okay. Sorry, sir. Uh, <laughs> and having hygiene. alienated those people from, fa- <laughs> from, uh, from eh. Facebook, uh, Joseph writes in um, to blatantly steal from this season of Community, which has been so good, by the way. Uh, what happened to Legos in the last couple of decades? They used to be so much more simple. And I think the point on I think the point on Community was that now you have kits that like. They have all these purpose-molded Lego pieces that are not, uh, you know, you used to have just blocks, different size blocks, and you could kind of, you were limited only by your imagination. You could make anything out of the blocks, and they weren't like, they weren't sort of goal-directed. But now the Legos are all goal-directed. I don't know. Now, well, now they want you to think that they're goal-directed, right? You can still build anything you want out of those blocks. They're just intended for a certain purpose. Well, it's essentially, well, it's, it's become, uh, it's a generation of kids raised on HD, Huh. So, like the pixelated battleship that we would have made is right. no longer is no longer acceptable. You've got to have the huh. one specially molded. I guess they don't do battleships, but pirate ships or whatever it, had, it happens to be these days. I mean, I'd offer an alternative, which is, I mean, one one analogy I draw is to fashion magazines, where when we were kids, fashion magazines used to have models on them, but now fashion magazines have celebrities on them uh, because they discovered the fashion magazine editors, that the ones with celebrities on them sell more. And the reason that they sell more is because people identify with who the celebrities are, and they have an affinity for the celebrity. And the affinity and not all, the affinity alone, just for that person's face, is enough to get you to buy that fashion magazine over another fashion magazine, irrespective of what's in it, irrespective of what clothes are on the person in the, in the picture. You'll buy the one with, you know, with Kim Kardashian, with... Uh, um, ScarJo over the one with like a beautiful Italian model wearing an awesome dress. And so when you're considering between two different Lego sets, are you going to get House or are you going to get Harry Potter? I don't mean House like the Doctor Show, because that would be awesome. <laughs> uh, that would be incredible. <laughs> Lego House. Uh, yeah. this, I mean, what, what, is, what does the Lego piece for completely alienating yourself from your closest friends in society look like? <laughs> I think it's it's one of those slopey ones that doesn't really fit. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know, but I definitely had it when I was a kid. <laughs> it was embedded at the bottom of my foot and left a blood blister the size of a dime. Um, but yeah, no. But I think that that 
the Legos did discovered that if they normal normalize, not, I guess normalize is a word. If they add an ought, if they add like a an identifiable thing, something you connect with, a story. I mean, that's why they have Lego Star Wars, right? Which has nothing to do with building these out of Legos. It's all about like Legos as this thing you have an affinity for. Star Wars is this thing you have an affinity for. Um, let's mix and match them, right? The Lego thing that blows my mind are the video games. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, we're not going to have an Indiana Jones video game. We're going to have an Indiana Jones Lego video game. Is I think it it's just because it's much, much easier to program a cylindrical yellow head rather than Harrison <laughs> Ford's like craggly face. One, yeah, a couple factors. One is that video games based on movies have a reputation for being terrible, justifiable reputation. So you want to create some distance between the video game based on the movie, right? Like between the video game and the movie. And I think that Lego does offer that level of of uh, of separation, um, where you can say, "Oh, Lego Star Wars sounds like a cool video game. Star Wars the video game sounds not so cool." Now there are good Star Wars video games. Knights of the Old Republic, the original, original Star Wars with like the flying down the trench and blowing up the, the polygonal Death Star is fine. But um, X Wing, don't forget X Wing. Well, no, no, I mean like, and X Wing is good too. Um, but there's always some sort of layer of separation. Um, it might be they're selling them to younger audiences, and that's why they do it. It might be that you want to make a, you want to make departures from the franchise in the way that you tell the story of the video game, and adding that Lego level of complexity lets you do that. Right, and like lets you doesn't you don't feel have to feel as slavishly devoted to the brand. Maybe you don't need as much brand approval. Maybe it's easier to do. I don't know. Maybe just sell it to parents. Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, maybe. By, by the way, on the on the topic of like you know why is it there now? You know the the you want to get the the fashion medal, the the, the the fashion magazine with the model on the front because you relate to it, and why you know there's Star Wars Legos and that sort of thing. Like I I heard remember hearing somewhere that that was a huge debate, internal debate inside of Lego whether they're going to take on these licensed products, right? You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to just you know these you know sure Lego had its own certain properties, but it was always like you know abstract and not connected to uh, you know a, a more established pop culture Space property Man and, or you know right yeah it was like it was it was really sort of a um, a philosophical thing that they were giving uh, kids sure you know like I remember when I bought Legos as a kid they they would come as a kit right but it wasn't going to be an X wing like you know I would like throw all my blocks into the thing and then I'll make my own damn X wing. Right, and then and then somewhere along the line they decided, well, you know, well, we need to make some money, more money than we have been making before. Therefore, mm-hmm. Star Wars and Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, Harry Potter Legos, which is what we have now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's there's an added thing too, which is that once you build these new sets, there's not much else you can do with them. Like the old Legos, you know, I remember, I remember being like nine and getting the space shuttle one, and it was awesome. And I built the space shuttle, and then an hour later, I tore it apart and then built something completely different, using my imagination rather the, than the sort of um, IKEA instructions that Lego pioneered. Yeah, um, I, I I remember when I got wheel Legos, right, and I could I could make these uh, big like battle tanks and just you know put wheels on the bottom of them. I had a whole like you know, battle bumper cars, like battle bots sort of competition on the floor of my bedroom, uh, with these, uh, Lego, you know, death, um, death vehicles that I invented. Right. And you can't, you, you can't play with, with, uh, you know, the pirate ship. Like if you pick it up and like, you know, try to like, I don't know, like put it in the bathtub, it's going to break. Yeah. But you shouldn't put things in the bathtub. 
Like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in your house you don't put in the bathtub. That's kind of a high level of it's stress. It's a ship, Pete. It's, it's a pirate ship. It should be watertight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Matt never had the Lego toaster, um, which was a really fantastic bath toy. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the Lego toaster you can put in the bathtub just fine. It's great. <laughs> well, you, you, could, you could do that once. <laughs> yeah, the Lego, right, exactly, the Lego hairdryer, yeah. the Lego. Yeah. Should, should we write Lego Sylvia Plath? Is that what we need to do? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> just pop the head off, put it inside of the oven? Yeah, the, the that's oven's, a, the oven's that's a video kit. game I would play. You would play Lego Sylvia Plath? <laughs> yeah, it, it, except it's an easy-bake oven, so it's using a, uh, you know... What are they yeah. going to do? With- you, have to, you have to build Ted Hughes's flower poetry quickly enough so that people can't see the horrible domestic abuse you inflict on your wife. Is that what it is? <laughs> I, did I tell you that one time I was feeling kind of down and kind of sad, and my, my mom and sisters, uh, my birthday came up, and they wanted to get me some poetry. So they went to the poetry section of the Barnes & Noble, and they looked around, and they saw this book covered in flowers, and they bought it, and they gave it to me. And they're like, we got this for you because we want to get you poetry about death. And it was Ted Hughes. <laughs> it's just oh, like, okay. oh, my goodness. That's dark. That is really dark. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a deep cut for all, those of you who are fans of the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Sil- Sylvia, which is a fiction and not real. And she, no, it's real, sort of. Anyway. Oh, all right. Uh, on to what we promised at the beginning of the show. Justin Bieber, baby daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, The Rock has come back to Justin Bieber, baby daddy. Yeah, man. Anyone want to say anything about that? Oh, is he having sex with 20-year-old women like backstage at his concerts? Is that happening? Um, that perhaps? is the accusation. That is, that is the accusation. What is on the table, what, will, uh, what is going to be put to the test. And if, if it's true, could not that woman be prosecuted for statutory rape? Depends. Seven, you know, this stuff about statutory rape, people are obsessed with statutory rape. <laughs> I don't know if it's a battle I want to fight. The, the lady doth protest too much. Yeah. Pete, you sound kind of like Sir Mix-a-Lot coming out to talk to the uh-huh. feminists now. <laughs> well, okay. What I'm, I feel like I can't You're go three saying, months. You know, my anaconda don't want none unless she got braces, hon. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is not acceptable. <laughs> well, I think that I feel like I can't go for like two or three months without somebody making some sort of joke about what the age of consent is in a particular area, right? And I, it's like as if this is something that is actually pertinent to most of our lives, right? Like, like as if, right? I mean, maybe this is just me, but like I don't really feel like that's a particularly big problem. <laughs> you know, like I don't have a particularly big problem with uh, with these things. Not that I, I certainly am glad that they're illegal, but um, you would think from the degree that everybody talks about it, that was like a really big deal, um, that it was like a really big thing, that like everybody's like, oh my God, I'm tr- I want to date this girl, but she's a child. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> like this doesn't seem like something that happens a lot. I mean, I guess it does. I guess there's small subsets of the population that just think differently than others. And I guess that if, and like, of course, back, you know, hundreds of years ago, or even a hundred years ago, ideas about these things are very different, and people became adults earlier, right? And like, um, in terms of their legal and their professional responsibilities, you know. Um, I mean, I guess, but I think also in a lot of parts of the United States, the age of consent is a lot lower than people assume it is, right? Like, in there's places where if you're they're married, it's like 
14 or 16, 14 or 15, right? Like, um, in, in parts of the country. And I mean, that's not cool, but I guess it means legal, but doesn't make it okay. Right. Like, um, I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a difference between the legal normativism, the legal norms of this, and then the sort of, um, moral norms of it. And then the sort of like, what does this actually mean for me on like a Sunday or a Monday? Like when I'm going about my day, how do I, how does this affect me? So it's like, if I run to Justin Bieber, right. And I'm like a, you know, I guess in this case, the woman was 20. So it's not that big of an age difference. And, and there probably would be a law grandfathering her in and most grandfathering, uh, grandfathering <laughs> in the States. Yeah, but he's also choice. Canadian, so you don't even know what it is in Can- Canada, what the deal is over there. Well, then he's, um, I mean, like he's been transported over international lines for purposes of sexual exploitation. I mean, that's human trafficking. Well, he's being sexually exploited whether people are having sex with him or not. Like, it's kind of the point, right? Right. This <laughs> is, I mean, right, this is like... I, this is the thing that's interesting about about this to me. I mean, not because, yeah, you know, I don't know. I kind of don't care whether, well, for the kid's sake, I guess I care whether Justin Bieber fathered a kid with a, a fan at a concert. But uh, it's this it's this point that they made very well on South Park, uh, which is that a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these sort of teen pop acts are, are engaged in a kind of Puritan dodge, like the Jonas Brothers and their purity rings. Um, the, the Puritan Dodge being, you know, uh, Foucault's the, the idea that Foucault wrote about that. Uh, but, you know, by being against sex, you, you're able to talk about sex all the time. And he was talking yeah, about but- Victorian Victorian England that like, um, you know, by being very puritanical about sex, you keep sex at the front of your mind uh, yeah. in order to, to condemn it. And so it's a it's just another slightly different spin on being being sex obsessed like you know like uh yeah. like an adolescent or something like this and that like that these these pop acts are kind of engaged in that are are kind of engaged in that game very cynically in that kind of puritan dodge very cynically and uh as the um how can we uh, as mickey mouse says in that south park episode how can we sell sex to kids you know without purity rings yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that. Well, go ahead. I think for for Justin Bieber, this is probably a good thing, like for his career, right? He's because he's at the point now where like he needs to stop being a boy and start being a man. Like he can't be this boy idol anymore. Because what is he seventeen now, or does he turn eighteen? Yes, and he, yeah, he finally has gone through puberty now as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, like, you know, he's hit that point where a lot of child stars just can't make it anymore. So, like, he needed to sort of take the sex. He needed to, like, to textualize the sex. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual. But I mean, he needed some textual healing, basically. But yeah. Talk, I mean, <laughs> talk about, we're in kind of the... the air, kind of that, like, nebulous gray area of gender double standard, right? Because, like... Does Selena Gomez need that, you know what I mean, need that, like, sexualization? I mean, I'd argue she's already pretty sexualized as she is, but, like, does she need to get less pure and innocent in order to kind of make the the transition to, in order to make the transition to, you know, young adult pop star? Uh, I mean, I I hate this idea that you have to, like, I hate this idea that, uh, uh, well, here, here's, a, here's a metaphor, right? So if you're a child and you commit a really heinous uh, adult crime, you can get tried as an adult. But if you're an adult and you commit like, a very childish crime, like, you can't be tried as a child. Right? right? Like, so like, there's this idea that, that behaviors and ages are necessarily linked with one another. And that in order to like, no longer be a child, you have to be a skank. 
right? Like, and it's like, I mean, I don't want to say skank. I hate those words. I hate these like sexually condemning words because I think people's, you know, sexual proclivities are their own. And they're also like an important part of being alive and you should own up to them and you should appreciate them and you shouldn't demonize them. Right. Like, and, and you should, you know, that's part of who you are as a person and who you are as a biological being and all that stuff. So you should pay attention to it and you should pay it with respect. So like, I mean, are you more or less sex obsessed as someone in their twenties than you were when you were 15? Like I would venture to say that it's probably a toss up, <laughs> you know, like that it's probably pretty similar. Um, I guess it's one way of distancing yourself. It's one way of making it very different. And by saying I'm re it's a rebranding, it's less of a personal growth issue and more of like a commercial rebranding issue. Right. Where it's yeah. like, well, but I guess what you could say is that, um, if a t- teen star or a child star is very sexualized in a subverted way as a youngster, and the point of being very sexualized as they grow up is sort of an Annette Funicello thing where you're trying to like reinvent them, if they're already sexualized, sexualizing them isn't going to reinvent them. It's just going to seem like an extension of the same thing. And I think that this is a case that Britney Spears ran into, right, where she's, you know, she's this sort of ingenue not even Anjou, she's this young sex pot dancer person. And then she gets older and she tries to transform her image by becoming more of a sex pot. And it just feels like overdoing it. If she changed her image and become a folk singer, like that would have been a change. You have to recognize where you are before you determine where you're going to be. Right. You have yeah, to, but you that's it. That's a change that does not lead to more album sales. Uh, does it? I mean, I mean, I'm, that specific change maybe is a bad idea, but there's any number of other things that she could have done. I mean, if your goal is to, to change her brand and reinvent her brand, um, and maybe the answer is that Britney Spears didn't need to reinvent her brand. She just is cyclical, and sometimes she's going to be out of favor, and sometimes she's going to be in favor, right? Um, maybe the – but we talk about, like, Selena Gomez, like, is, is, like, does she really need to slut it up in order to change her image? I, I would venture that she needs something else. She doesn't necessarily need to be sexier. She needs to do something that separates her from what she was as, as a child star. Um, and Justin Bieber needs to do something else, like play a freaking instrument, for example. That would be a great example. Justin Bieber learns how to play the piano and, and starts playing the piano really well. Um, and does ragtime because that, that's how <laughs> that's how because he played piano. He, he does play. He does play the guitar for the record. Okay, so like if he if Justin Bieber starts showing off and Justin Bieber arranges and shows up on the Tonight Show or whatever if they still have that I don't even know and and like plays an instrument really really well and does like an actual good singing job like that is probably going to separate him more from who he was as a child star than if he starts like humping people all the time. Yes, right? Pete, but it's it's far easier to impregnate a twenty year old than to learn to play an instrument. <laughs> Say that to There you go, quoting scripture again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I was 17. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I learned a lot of it. You weren't Justin Bieber. <laughs> that's true. I wasn't Justin Bieber. I didn't have that kind of advantage. And you picked um, the trombone as an instrument, too, which is sort of setting a high bar. <laughs> I don't even know what a bar it's setting. It just lets me sit in the back and count tacit measures during orchestra practice. You really get really good counting in multiples of four. Exactly. And then blowing. Basically. Uh, <laughs> all right. I, I think we have to leave our conversation there for the day. But if you if you want to uh, join in, you can email us at podcastoverthinking.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Uh, or you can join the conversation, which is always lively, on the comments for the show notes for this podcast. Um, do us a favor and tell a friend about the podcast. Will you become a uh, network marketer? 
Will you join the Overthinking It affiliate network, the, the affiliate marketing program? You get absolutely nothing for your <laughs> efforts except the knowledge that uh, we're very grateful to you. So share this episode or your other favorite episode with a friend. And until next week, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It Mail. Internet. <laughs> Maps. What? Weather clock. Oh. Come out. Come out and show. Come out. <laughs> I'm just going to read them left to right. I'm going to open up my apps and read them left to right. AK Notepad. Amazon MP3, Angry Birds. <laughs> Local Teen Finder. Oh, hold on. What? When I was 17. Delete, delete, delete. I'm looking at my phone here. Harvey Feierstein app. <laughs> Incredible. How did I get there? Harvey Feierstein eyes. Uh, oh, Mozilla needs to make Feierstein browsers that just do everything in an accident. <laughs> Mozilla Feierstein. Do you want to stop a reload? <laughs> sure. sure, Google Chrome is fast and integrates well with Flash, but is it hirsute enough for your purpose? <laughs> Javi Feierstein. But you're running through the Nietzsche works earlier, Pete. Is it weird that I can't hear about Mensch und Supermensch without thinking that it's like my mom talking to me? <laughs> I don't think it's strange that you equate Nietzsche oh. with your mom. <laughs> she has the will to power. She definitely does. It's pretty much it. She's beyond good and evil. <laughs>